Hello, I'm Peter Mayers. Welcome to Big Ideas and the Boyer Lectures on ABC Radio National, devoted this year to the topic of higher education and its transformative role in the 21st century. The federal government has set an ambitious target for higher education over the next 15 years. It wants to ensure that by 2025, at least 40% of all 25 to 34-year-olds have a bachelor's degree or higher. It's a goal that can only be achieved by opening up the tertiary education system to newcomers. In short, it means making higher education more equitable. It's a big challenge, but one endorsed by our 2010 Boyer lecturer, Professor Glyn Davis, Vice-Chancellor of the University of Melbourne. Equity is the focus of today's lecture, the fourth in his series, The Republic of Learning. In this lecture, I want to ask some awkward questions. How democratic is our republic? Who gets to be a citizen? And how do we ensure that universities serve individuals and communities across this nation? Today, we equate republicanism with democracy, but it was not always so. For most of human history, republicanism was associated with a virtuous elite. And of course, this is no longer acceptable. Equality of opportunity has become the rule. People expect university entry to be based on the principle of merit. Elitism, at least elitism based on something other than intellectual ability, is untenable. If Australia is to be a meritocracy, drawing in students from all walks of life is essential. So where do we begin this quest for a democratic republic of learning? At the beginning, with school. Sean and Adam Tunks are primary school students at Sanctuary Point Public School, about 25 kilometres from Nowra on the New South Wales south coast. Their mother teaches at the school and the family are active in the nearby St George's Basin community. It's a beautiful area, close to beaches and quiet, except in summer when tourists arrive in their thousands. The Tunks family illustrates how education has changed over several generations. For while Sean and Adam's parents, grandparents and great-grandparents would recognise the familiar literacy and numeracy lessons of primary school, their opportunities and expectations were very different. For Sean and Adam's great-grandfather Edward, education ended early. Edward finished school at 16 and became a drover before labouring on construction of the Burrenjack Dam. He spent time in the army, he worked in a lino factory. Like the men of his generation, Edward could move between jobs, learning skills at work with very little formal instruction. Going to university was rare in Edward's generation, open to perhaps one in 20 young Australians. Edward's son Harry, Sean and Adam's grandfather, left school in the early 1950s with his intermediate certificate to become a builder. Times were changing with a growing emphasis on organised education. Harry's training as a builder involved an apprenticeship and study at Granville Technical College. Harry subsequently worked as a licensed builder, assisting construction of the 2000 Sydney Olympics cauldron. Most of Harry's generation of Australians did not seek post-school education. Many careers were open to those with no formal qualifications, while some professions were still entered via admission tests rather than university. 
Dentistry, for example, was an apprenticeship in New South Wales until the 1930s. University study was not compulsory for admission to legal practice until the mid-1960s. Accounting, nursing and journalism did not require tertiary-level study until recently. Still, while Harry was young, the university sector began to expand. From just 30,000 students across all of Australia in the 1950s, university enrolments reached 100,000 by the middle of the 1960s. And only then did specialised intakes and strict cut-off scores appear. Previously, few faculties imposed quotas. Once accepted to university, students could choose law or medicine, arts or engineering. For Harry's generation, further education was principally men's business. The gender roles of their times saw men as breadwinners. Only single women would need to keep themselves afloat with the job. So men were more likely than women to stay at school beyond the compulsory years and more likely to complete a post-school qualification. Women not only had less access to education, but many were compelled to leave the workforce when they married, a rule still operating in the Australian public service in 1966. Such restrictions discourage women from acquiring professional qualifications or from pursuing a career. Incidentally, the man who recommended abolition of the marriage bar was Sir Richard Boyer, in whose memory this lecture series is named. Some women refused to be deterred, but on average, university classes for this generation were mostly male. Until the early 1970s, two-thirds of university students were men, and universities tended to welcome the middle class. Though teaching scholarships were available for some, for many young people, fees stood in the way of higher education. Harry's daughter Gemma was born into a very different world. During the 1970s and 1980s, the labour market for teenage school leavers deteriorated sharply. Gemma's mother worked to help support her four children, but the women of Gemma's generation expected to study and to choose professional careers. In 1994, Gemma enrolled at the then Nepean campus of the University of Western Sydney, studying a Bachelor of Teaching primary. The University of Western Sydney was then a very new university, recently formed by amalgamating two former colleges of advanced education with an agricultural college. Committed to serving the greater west of Sydney, a region with historically low participation in higher education, UWS is rightly proud of the opportunities it provides. It knows that higher education can transform lives and communities. Like a majority of UWS students, Gemma was the first in her family to go to university. She faced a long commute and eventually moved in with her sister who lived closer to campus. During her studies, Gemma undertook four teaching placements at local schools. Her course included foundation disciplines such as maths and English, history, the creative arts and Australian studies. Gemma graduated at the end of 1996 and accepted a job at Busby West Primary School. Later, she returned to the University of Western Sydney part-time to complete a further qualification. When her family left the western suburbs of Sydney for St George's Basin in 2005, Gemma joined Sanctuary Point Primary School as a temporary teacher. Gemma's generation is the first 
in which girls were as likely as boys to complete Year 12. By the 1980s, two out of every three teenagers completed high school, and this trend fueled expectation of a place on campus. The result was an unprecedented expansion of university places. Australian universities added a quarter of a million students between 1987 and 1997. About one in four of this generation ended up with a university qualification. That year, 1987, was a turning point in Australian education, the first year that female students outnumbered men on campus, a pattern that continues. Gemma was part of that new majority, studying for a profession that now demands a university qualification. On current federal government projections, her sons will likely be among the 40% of young Australians who study at university. Even more will seek a TAFE or vocational qualification. Right now, at ages 8 and 9, Sean and Adam are thinking of careers in the military, just one of the many organisations in which further education is now mandatory. Officers receive a university degree at the Australian Defence Force Academy, part of the University of New South Wales. Modern weaponry requires high-level technical skills, along with the courage and endurance always expected of the military. We cannot say with certainty how much education Sean, Adam and their generation will need to prosper as adults. But during the decades from Edward and Harry to Gemma, from the post-war era to today, formal education has become part of family expectations. Edward left school early, like most of his contemporaries. His son studied for a TAFE qualification, while his granddaughter would see a bachelor's degree as essential. No doubt Gemma's aspirations for Sean and Adam include an important role for further education. The Tunks family trace a broader Australian social change. In just three generations, higher education has moved from the margins of society to its mainstream. Men and women now participate on equal terms. If the government's targets are met, and few doubt that the acceleration of higher education will continue, today's primary school students are eight times as likely to go to university as their great-grandparents. The Republic of Learning, once the preserve of an elite, is on the road to democracy. This new world of education and work offers exciting opportunities. There are more interesting and well-paid jobs than ever before. For those with professional qualifications, a global labour market offers work in Shanghai, London or New York. Though graduates start work later in life, they earn significantly more over their lifetime. And education is an investment that keeps on returning. Yet a world of credentials also creates new risks. For younger adults today, the lack of university or higher-level vocational qualifications doubles their chance of unemployment. Less education is statistically linked to lower income, a higher chance of poor physical or mental health, less involvement in community and civic life, and for men, a lesser chance of getting and staying married. Missing out on an education flows through to every part of life. Education is what the economist and philosopher Amartya Sen calls capabilities. 
the right collection of capabilities allows us to live lives we find meaningful, productive and rewarding, lives we have reason to value. A capability is more than a liberty because we may lack the capacity to do the things we are permitted, and it's not an outcome because people use their capabilities in very different ways. In this approach to social policy, the goal should be to ensure that every person has a basket of capabilities, health, literacy and numeracy, sufficient income to meet basic needs, social skills, and enough education to meet the demands of their times. There is a collective dimension to this understanding. Along with individual capabilities, education brings benefits to a community. By every measure, from health outcomes to civic engagement, an educated community offers better outcomes for its members. Higher education helps develop community life and shared expertise. Such outcomes provide an argument for equality that goes well beyond the possibilities that education opens up for individuals. Viewed through this frame, access to education is a moral question, since education links to so many other aspects of life. When educational capabilities are not shared fairly in our community, prosperity and well-being will not be shared fairly either. So, how to guarantee that everyone has an opportunity to become a citizen in the Republic of Learning. That question has dominated recent research on education outcomes. What explains differences in these outcomes? What is the role of universities and government in ensuring access and equality of opportunity? In a public education system regulated and substantially funded by government, the question of who participates should be a political issue. Meeting the demand for education has been a major challenge for state and federal governments. School retention rates slowly increased through the 1960s and 1970s before soaring in the 1980s. TAFE enrolments also grew significantly to around 1.7 million students a year. Domestic university enrolments now number around 800,000 with another 200,000 international students studying in Australia. While the wider population has less than tripled since the 1950s, the domestic university student population has increased some 26-fold. Good policies have made this outcome possible. There's been a sustained push to increase the proportion of young people reaching Year 12. Flexible entry requirements have increased opportunities for further study for disadvantaged students, the mature age, and those graduating from TAFE. There are more part-time study options available and access to income support through Youth Allowance and Ausstudy. There are more campuses and an innovative student loans program, the Higher Education Contribution Scheme, allows students to postpone paying for their course until they earn decent wages. Taken in aggregate, these policies have achieved a remarkable result. Our school system provides a place to Year 12 for every Australian child, and most young adults can then secure a place at a university or TAFE to further their education. There is no evidence that overt discrimination based on gender, ethnicity or other characteristics systemically excludes people from higher education. 
Yet despite this continued success in boosting overall enrolment numbers, a stubborn and unresolved problem remains. Social background matters a great deal in how much education you receive. Your choice of parents and the community in which you live affect your basket of capabilities. Parents differ in how much they value study and how much they can support children's education. Many families live far away from high-quality schools and access to a TAFE or university campus. For people in regional areas, and particularly Indigenous Australians in remote communities, further education options are often very limited. The influence of family and place is complex, but some patterns are clear. If a parent holds a university degree, there is a 50% chance their daughter or son will attend university soon after completing school. But thereafter, the odds fall sharply. For parents who finish their education at year 12, the chances of their children getting to university halve to just one in four. And for those who did not finish school, there's only a one in five chance of the next generation going to campus. Parents who value education for themselves are likely to pass that attitude onto their children. University-educated parents can give their children advice and academic help, paying if necessary for tuition or private schooling. Children follow in their parents' footsteps. Advantage is passed down through generations, as is disadvantage. Yet a parent's past is not a straitjacket from which children cannot escape. The history of migration to Australia makes this clear. Parents who missed out on higher education but came from communities that value learning and create a home that supports study will encourage their children to pursue further learning. Many Vietnamese families, like the family of Nam Lee, author of the prize-winning fiction volume The Boat, arrived in Australia as refugees, their lives disrupted by war and persecution. Nam Lee, three months old when the family reached Australia, says his parents arrived with nothing but the shorts and T-shirts they wore. Yet by working multiple jobs, by encouraging their children to study, this refugee generation has given today's Australia some of its most outstanding achievers. Like Nam Lee, himself a graduate and today the fiction editor of Harvard Review. Such a trajectory is not unique. Young Australians of Vietnamese background, strongly encouraged by their parents, are much more likely than the broader population to attend university and to excel. There are many inspiring stories of individuals overcoming disadvantage to secure an education, and with it, a better life. Even in our least affluent communities, 20% of young Australians find their way to TAFE or university. But given the many advantages through life from education, any difference in access raises a pressing question of fairness. How do we close the gap in educational attainment? Our national challenge is to ensure full admission to the Republic of Learning and the capabilities that education helps provide for every Australian. The answer must begin in the early years. As recent research confirms, family life childcare and initial schooling all have a big effect on future development. The Nobel Prize winning economist James Heckman has demonstrated that children who fall behind by age 8 are unlikely ever to catch up. 
Australian evidence supports this grim finding. One study of 10,000 children found that by age four and five, there are socioeconomic differences in learning. The most recent NAPLAN test results reported on the MySchool website show the influence of parental education by age eight. In writing and numeracy tests, children of parents with university qualifications are already well ahead of the average. By contrast, the children of parents who finish school in year 11 are much less likely to meet even the minimum standard. These gaps in literacy and numeracy remain large at year 9 when students are aged about 14. Whether or not university is the aim, literacy and numeracy are essential skills for other learning. Weaknesses in the early years undermine capabilities and flow through to less education, lower incomes and difficulties in managing even everyday tasks, such as understanding correspondence and instructions, following maps, reading timetables, calculating costs. An inability to help children with their homework reinforces inherited disadvantage. Consistent with the research, federal and state governments are focusing on the beginnings of a child's life. Improved neonatal care aims to reduce disadvantage that can begin so early. Programs that teach parenting skills hope to improve outcomes for children. There is recognition of the need for greater investment in the quality and availability of early childhood education, but still much, much more to be done. These initiatives will take a long time to flow through to university entry. The National Early Childhood Development Strategy is based on a vision for the year 2020. Children who receive its full benefits that year will be ready for university entry around 2038. We can't wait that long. So there must be an immediate focus on better schools and better pathways for those who've already left school. Crucial to this national effort is the dedication of school teachers. Teachers like Gemma Tunks, mother of Sean and Adam. Our kindergarten teachers are often the first great formative influence beyond the family, and school our first experience of working with a group of strangers and living alongside difference. School gives us a glimpse of something bigger than ourselves and our immediate circle. It's an invitation to open the mind. School teachers are the quiet heroes in our communities, daily adding to the knowledge and the social skills of young Australians. The educational transformation of Australia over recent generations is built on their hard work. The task now is to invest in teaching, taking our schools to the next level of skill and professionalism. The people who teach the teachers, the education faculties around the nation, are thinking carefully about how to do so. The Melbourne Graduate School of Education, for example, has shifted professional training to graduate level, choosing graduates with strong undergraduate degrees in their respective fields and the maturity to know that school teaching really is their preferred career. A new curriculum with early immersion in classroom practice prepares the next generation of teachers. Getting good people excited about providing education for the disadvantaged is the ambition of the Teach for Australia program. Teach for Australia takes talented graduates from all disciplines with leadership and communication skills and gives them intense training while teaching in underprivileged schools for two years. 
It's too early to test results from Teach for Australia against other forms of teacher training, but similar programs overseas are encouraging. This is one of the most exciting innovations in the teaching profession in recent years, the Republic of Learning sending out its brightest ambassadors to advocate the importance of education. Such initiatives sit alongside the national curriculum, better identification of students and schools at risk through national testing, more information for parents, and more autonomy and accountability for school leaders. It is an agenda that puts students at the centre of the policy conversation. To suggest that equality of opportunity must begin with preschool is not to let universities off the hook. Issues of fairness cannot be deferred a generation. A democratic republic of learning must look to the current enrolment and teaching practices of universities. If we have a shared image of a university student, it's of a young person who recently completed Year 12 and went immediately to campus. But this is misleading. Most Australian university first-year students did not come straight from school. Universities draw on a much wider constituency, with many students arriving with work experience and vocational qualifications. But the challenge remains how to encourage those now in school to go the next step and those who left education some time ago to consider further study. At the University of Ballarat, current undergraduates visit Year 10 classes in their old secondary colleges to lift aspirations and offer practical advice about university life, from moving out of home to securing income support. These Year 10 students then spend a day on campus to get a feel for university life. James Cook University in northern Queensland recognises that many disadvantaged people could benefit from university education. This is particularly true for Indigenous people who have much lower school completion rates than the rest of the community and remain the group of Australians most seriously underrepresented on campus. JCU offers a six-month tertiary access course primarily designed for Indigenous students so people who did not finish school can nonetheless prepare for university-level studies. For many adult students, the path to university can be through a TAFE course. Australia's five dual-sector universities, institutions that offer both higher education and TAFE courses, are skilled at encouraging progression. Former TAFE students make up 20% or more of the undergraduate intake. They may follow the example of Cassandra Fay, who began from modest origins. I never went to private schools, she told one interviewer. My dad went to Broadie High, and my mum went to school in Swan Hill and left when she was 13. Fay found her way to TAFE studies in art and design at the Box Hill Institute, and then moved to an architectural degree at RMIT University in Melbourne. A talented and imaginative student, she was accepting commissions before completing her studies and is now amongst the most successful of her generation of architects. Cassandra Fay is humble about her achievement. We're lucky in this country, she notes. You're taken on face value, and if you do good things, that's fine. She's now studying for a master's degree in architecture. Yet overall data suggests public universities have not done enough to extend higher education to disadvantaged Australians. 
Some take a tough-minded position on this failing, arguing that public universities have used their near-monopoly on government-supported places to shape the higher education system in their own interests. Academic excellence is a virtue for the modern university with its emphasis on original research and informed scholarship, but does it necessarily serve the interests of students or promote wider access to higher education? Any system based on rewarding academic achievement will favour those whose parents hold university degrees or have other social advantages. At school, the preoccupation in years 11 and 12 with achieving university admission invites a focus on the most academically able. Ranking applications by prior academic achievement is not the only possible system, but it reflects the interests and priorities of universities. High-achieving students enhance university prestige. They are often well-prepared to be self-directed learners and so easier to teach, and they are more likely to become researchers and the next generation of scholars, turning the academic cycle. Yet if we view universities as gatekeepers to the professions, it's not so obvious that prior academic achievement is the best sorting device. Employers seek a wider range of skills and attributes in their staff than just academic results. By filtering access to the professions through narrow tests of academic ability, many people never get to show what they can offer. Greater flexibility in selection criteria above a minimum necessary for admission, is part of the answer. Some universities already include aptitude tests and personal statements in deciding admission. Others give priority to applicants from disadvantaged backgrounds. Universities ask teachers from schools in challenging areas to nominate talented students who could do well in further study even if their final marks would not secure a place on campus. Once students do secure a place, it is not certain the organisation of university life will work in their interests. Though HEX removes upfront fees, the costs of living while at university can exclude families from regional Australia. And there's no flexibility in the price of study. All Commonwealth-supported undergraduate places in a particular course cost the same, regardless of university. This limits choice since public universities double as research institutions and so cluster at the expensive end of the spectrum. There are arguments, too, about the structure of the academic year. Though the long summer break has distant origins in students going home to help with the harvest, it is now a student-free time so academics can work without interruption to their research. Put aside this delay, and the standard three-year undergraduate course could be completed in two years, something that would make university more accessible to workers and parents. Of course, many students prefer the current system. They like studying in a research institution, being close to people at the cutting edge of their field, and they want to take time to absorb the lessons. They use the summer breaks to travel, to broaden their reading, to work to finance their study. For many students, University is a time of exploration before the rigours of adult life become too constraining, and summer the gift of what Michael Oakeshott called an interval, an opportunity to put aside the hot allegiances of youth without the necessity of at once acquiring new loyalties to take their place. 
But in a more democratic republic of learning, there will be greater diversity of students. Some want time to broaden their intellectual horizons. Others will seek quickly to build qualifications. People will start university at different stages of life and expect institutions to accommodate their varied circumstances. It's not clear the single model of an Australian public university is equipped to deal with this expanded spectrum of students. A wider range of institutions, each meeting the needs of different students, may be an important part of meeting our equity challenge. It is a theme for the final lecture of this series. At Sanctuary Point Public School, students prepare for a future that will be as different as the world experienced successively by Edward, Harry and Gemma. Their descendants, Sean and Adam, will not finish school until around 2020. Waiting for them should be the best possible universities, technical and further education institutions, offering a quality of education that will equip today's primary school students to work until 2065 or later. It is important that every child at Sanctuary Point and everyone already beyond primary school years has access to higher education. All Australians, whatever their means, should feel encouraged to participate. Only when citizenship is available to all who seek will we realise the potential of this Republic of Learning. Professor Glyn Davis, Vice-Chancellor of the University of Melbourne, on Becoming a Citizen in the Republic of Learning, his fourth 2010 Boyer Lecture, Exploring Higher Education in the 21st Century. 